All right, welcome to Theological Equipping Class. We continue our journey through what we've called applied theology. Last week, if you were here, Carl walked us through uh, family discipleship. Today we want to kind of build on that by talking about uh, discipline in particular, the discipline of children. Before we get started on the actual topic, though, I wanted to let you know we have a new number for texting questions. And so uh, you might not notice uh, that should be a new number. If that's not the new number, then there will be a new number that is put up there. And it looks like from the smiles, that's not the new number. So it will be up there uh, sometime in the next few minutes. And so if you have it saved in your phone as tech questions or something like that, make sure to uh, adjust it uh, accordingly. Uh, Again, that should be up there soon. So I want you to think, what do you think about when you think about the word discipline. When you think of the word discipline, maybe you envision someone getting excommunicated from a church as a form of uh, church discipline. Maybe what comes into your mind is some image of like Rocky Balboa. He's jogging the streets of Philly, punching slabs of meat. All right. Maybe you think of spanking your kid, sending them to time out. In reality, each of those is a form of discipline. Discipline is a really broad concept. The, the, the simplest way, though, to define it is to, uh, is, is to talk about discipline as training and instruction. In fact, you'll note the same root word in discipline is in the word disciple. The word discipline refers to instruction, while the word disciple refers to the student who receives that instruction. So a disciple is one who has been disciplined. And that general idea of training or instruction might be exemplified in someone training for a, a marathon, and thus they're, they're engaging in the discipline of getting up early and going for daily jogs, or it might be exemplified by a father or a mother disciplining his or her child, or a teacher instructing a student. Each of those illustrates forms of discipline. And discipline is really a two-sided coin. When you speak of discipline, you're really talking about two different things. They're related, but they're distinct. On one side of that coin is what is called formative discipline. On the other side is what's called corrective discipline. Formative discipline includes teaching and instruction in order to form, that's why it's called formative, to form good character, whereas corrective discipline utilizes some form of chastening to correct, so it's called corrective, to correct bad behavior. So formative discipline is, is interested in forming good behavior. Corrective discipline is interested in correcting bad behavior. Formative discipline is thus going to be more proactive, whereas corrective discipline is more reactive. And when most people think of the word discipline, they typically assume the concept of corrective discipline. They think about things, especially in the context of parental discipline, they think about spanking or timeout or, or something like that. Biblically, however, the formative and the corrective are inherently linked. Again, they're two sides of the same coin. They can't be um, separated or divorced. That's why we talked about family discipleship last week. That's formative discipline. Today is corrective discipline, especially within the context of the home. And here's the point. If you are going to parent your kid and you're going to uh, uh, be faithful to the command to disciple your kid, then it stands to reason that you must also discipline your kid. 
If you have discipleship without discipline, that really isn't discipleship. That's half-hearted. That's diluted. That's reducing it down. And when it comes to formative discipline, everyone agrees with that. Everyone would say, if you're going to disciple your kids, you have to formatively discipline them. Where people get a little bit more suspicious, a little less clear, is when it comes to corrective discipline. There's much more confusion. There's much more outright uh, neglect of that concept. That's especially the case when it comes to forms of corporal punishment. What is corporal punishment? Corporal refers to the Latin word corpus, which means body. So corporal punishment is any form of physical affliction that's afflicted upon someone's body. So that would include things like spanking. For most of human history, most cultures actually practiced corporal punishment. Most cultures affirmed the necessity, the responsibility, the virtue of, uh, of corrective discipline in general and corporal punishment in particular, but that's no longer the case. So why are parents today suddenly so uneasy, so embarrassed by the concept of corporal punishment? Think back, if you are uh, around my age or, or older, I'm in my mid-40s, when I was a kid, anyone could spank you, Right? Teachers in school, raise your hand if you ever were spanked in school, right? Teachers in school could do so. Sunday school teachers in your church could spank you, right? Some random stranger at Walmart could spank you, right? You'd run away from your parents. Someone would find you. And before they took you back to the parents, they said, I'm going to teach you a lesson. And they just spank you right there in the, the, uh, the aisles. And that's certainly not the case today, Right? In fact, lots of countries today forbid spanking. There are a number of countries, you'd be shocked at the number, that actually have outlawed spanking. Most states have outlawed spanking in schools. I think there's only 19 that still allow that to happen. And only something like one-third of all parents in the U.S. today think that spanking is an appropriate form of corrective discipline. So why is it? Why is it that what was once universally, historically accepted in all societies is now the rarity? The answer to that is that cultural assumptions and practices don't arise in a vacuum. Anything that you see within our culture is going to be shaped by certain influences. So what are the influences that have led to less and less spanking? I'll have five that I'm going to mention. The, the, the first is the death of the concept of original sin. Historically, Western culture, which was influenced by Christianity, viewed kids as innately inclined to sin. We'll talk about this a little bit more shortly. But with the influence of post-enlightenment philosophers, psychologists, and theologians, guys like Rousseau, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Sigmund Freud, Carl Rogers, and others, there's been this profound shift in contemporary thinking about sin. Now, all of a sudden, disobedience is considered to be less a reflection of your inward transgression. It's more a reflection in our culture of these external factors in culture. In other words, in the battle between nature and nurture, nurture is one. In the battle between Augustine and Pelagius, most modern theories of child-rearing, if you don't know who those guys are, by the way, we're going to talk about that shortly, most modern theories of child-rearing are actually Pelagian. Most parents today in Western culture would be terribly offended 
If you said their sweet little kid was actually innately wicked and depraved and evil, even though that's what Christians have always believed for thousands of years. That's the first thing that has happened. The second is the influence of pop culture and pop psychology. Think about where culture historically kind of took the lead from. Culture historically has has taken its lead from church philosophers, from theologians. What about today? Today we're more influenced as a society. We're more inclined to be influenced by the tweets and blogs of celebrities. There's this weird thinking that goes on in our culture that if, if LeBron can dunk a basketball, surely he can teach me about parenting. The same is true for the Kardashians or whoever, right? Or what about Bill Nye or Neil deGrasse Tyson? They're scientists after all, right? Or maybe we follow the the opinions of your favorite uh, mom blogger and she prefers a more progressive form of discipline that doesn't wound the fragile ego of her precious innocent child. Or maybe we read a book or listened to a lecture about the side effects, the consequences of spanking, And so we resolve to not make the same mistakes of previous generations. There's this influence of pop culture and pop psychology. A third thing that has influenced where we are today is a pragmatic and utilitarian view of ethics. What I mean by that is our culture has become obsessed with, quote-unquote, what works. And what works has been defined in categories of what builds self-esteem, or what makes children happy, or some other such goal. As a result of that, it's easy to see why spanking would seem to be distasteful. In fact, any form of corrective discipline would seem to be distasteful. As the idea of self-esteem and child dignity takes center stage, as it did in the mid-20th century with the writings of the influential pediatrician, you may have heard of him, Dr. Spock, not the Star Trek dude. But anything that would seem to threaten that presupposition that what's most important in your child is his self-esteem, anything that would seem to threaten that presupposition is thus a danger to our understanding of human nature itself. So rather than disciplining children and discipling children to know and to love and to understand the kingdom of God, to know Christ and his bride and his word, parents have become more and more content to pursue their, uh, their child's temporal comfort or their happiness as a chief end. We want to make sure they would get into a good college or they get a good job. And if we do that, then we wash our hands because that's kind of been this reorientation of what parenting even involves. A fourth factor is the secularization of society, the lessening influence of Scripture. Right? Certainly it's true that uh, spanking doesn't just come from a Judeo-Christian sort of Value It's practiced in many non-Western, non-Christian cultures. But much of the objective basis, much of the objective basis of it has been from the Bible. And as our culture is less and less familiar with the Bible and certainly has less of a biblical worldview, less beholden to Scripture as being inspired and authoritative, it makes perfect sense for what Scripture says regarding discipline to be questioned and rejected. And then lastly... There are other factors, but lastly that I'll mention are reductionistic views on the meaning of grace and the love of God. Historically and biblically, discipline was actually seen as gracious. It was actually seen as loving. Today there's this divide 
that has been driven between grace and discipline, as if those are antithetical, as if those are actually in opposition. In other words, rather than allowing Scripture to define what's loving and what define what's gracious, we've allowed culture, we've allowed our feelings to do so. Unfortunately, that culture and those feelings provide definitions that are contrary to the actual meanings of those terms biblically. Today, what's actually loving is viewed as harsh. And what's actually gracious is viewed as abusive and unkind. So that's at least five factors that have influenced culture to reject the idea of discipline in general and corporal punishment in particular. And those various streams together have eroded the historical and biblical view of discipline. So what is the historical and biblical view of a parent's responsibility? There are four complementary truths that I want you to know. Four things. Number one, discipline is good and loving. Number two, parents are commanded to disciple and thus discipline their children. Number three, parental discipline must include both formative and corrective discipline. Number four, corrective discipline should include corporal punishment. Where any one of those truths is lacking, parents abdicate their responsibility and acknowledge that their parenting is driven more by culture, more by their feelings, more by other philosophical assumptions than it is by Christ. Let's talk about each of these four points, and then we'll give some helpful hints. By the way, most of the content of this lesson is pulled from a blog that we have on our website called Should I Spank My Kids? So you're welcome to consult that if you want more on this. But few words are as misunderstood and unappreciated in in the 21st century American church as the word discipline. Right? It's one of those princess pride, you keep using that word, I don't think it means what you think it means, sort of words. Whether it comes to church discipline, which people uh, are uh, against, or when it comes to disciplining our own children, many Christians kind of cringe at the thought of discipline. They want to encourage more progressive love and grace rather than discipline. Demonstrating what? That they don't really understand discipline or love or grace. Because in reality, discipline is itself loving and gracious. In fact, failing to discipline is profoundly unloving and unkind. Let's begin by uh, defining what we mean by discipline. Most of the modern discomfort with things like corporal punishment, things like spanking and other forms of discipline, corrective discipline, comes from a misunderstanding of the nature of discipline. As a result of all those philosophical shifts that we mentioned earlier, there's this nearly universal assumption. It it, it permeates even our own hearts. You might have a biblical worldview and you still are going to feel the effects of this because it is the air that we breathe. It is the water in which we swim. It is the culture that is around us. There's this nearly universal assumption in culture that corrective discipline is harsh. It's mean. It's unkind. So of all the fundamental truths about discipline to grasp, This is perhaps the most important. Discipline is good, and discipline is loving. If you don't understand that one truth, nothing else that I say is going to register. Nothing else that I say is going to actually make much of a difference. Everything else won't really make sense. As long as there is part of you that thinks discipline is inherently unkind or harsh or mean, then you'll neither understand discipline nor apply it properly. So this is the most important part of the lesson. If you're going to tune me out, right, tune me out after this part. Perhaps no passage 
better demonstrates this than the one which portrays our heavenly Father's gracious discipline of his children. Look at Hebrews 12. If you want a passage, this is not about disciplining your children, but if you want a passage that tells you the theology of discipline, look at Hebrews 12. Memorize this and reflect upon it. Verses 5 through 12. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and lived? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. So I want you to notice a few things. Number one, that discipline is explicitly tethered to God's love. Explicitly tethered to God's love. Number two, that God disciplines every son or daughter. And those who are not disciplined are those who are not sons or daughters. They're called illegitimate. In other words, God disciplines all his children and only his children. Number three, that discipline is ultimately for our good though it is temporally or temporarily unpleasant. In fact, the unpleasantness is an inherent aspect of discipline. Right? If what you do to discipline your children is something that they enjoy, that's not a very good form of discipline. Right? I'm a strong introvert. My parents send me to my room. That's great. That's what I most want in life, to be sent to my room. Right? As a parent now, just a moment of quiet is all I long for, all right? So if you're disciplining your kids in a way that actually is pleasant to them, you're not actually accomplishing the goal. It should be painful. There should be some unpleasantness that's inherent to it. That's part of the definition of it. So what we see in this passage destroys this common caricature of discipline as being unloving or unkind. If God disciplines those whom he loves as an example of his love, then discipline cannot be inherently mean or cruel. Can discipline be abused? Of course it can. Any of God's gifts can be abused, but the potential of abuse doesn't negate the responsibility of proper use. This understanding that discipline is good and loving is going to be the foundation for any philosophy of parenting. And at this point, someone could object that just because God disciplines his children, that doesn't mean that we should. Right After all, there are lots of things that God does that we don't. He sacrifices his son. He creates the world. He takes life, so forth. There are a lot of things that God does that we're not allowed to do. So the fact that God does something doesn't necessarily mean that we should go and do likewise. So does the Bible tell us to go and do likewise as it relates to discipline? And the answer is, it does. Notice how often this connection between love and discipline by parents is drawn in the Old Testament wisdom literature. All of these from Proverbs. Chapter 13, whoever spares the rods hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Chapter 3, 
My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Proverbs, or Hebrews is quoting that earlier. Chapter 19, discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. In other words, to not discipline him is like setting your heart on putting him to death. You're killing your children, is what the author is saying. So in each of these passages, we see that it's love which fuels and drives discipline, with the purpose being the good of the one who is disciplined. So according to these scriptures, discipline is loving, it's cleansing, it's hopeful, it's healing. So ironically, what is actually cruel, what is actually harsh, what is actually unkind, is to refrain from disciplining those whom you love. If love is defined as doing what is best for others, even when it hurts, and if what is best is actually defined by the Bible and not by our own feelings, if what you think of as being best for your children is to love and trust Jesus, to be submissive to authority and so forth, and not just to get into a good college or to get a good job or to get a good spouse or whatever it might be, if you're actually thinking through a biblical worldview then it's clear that discipline for the good of others is inherently loving. Let's talk a bit more about the role of parents in regards to discipline. If someone were to ask you, what is your role as a parent? How would you answer that? Or if someone were to ask you, what's the goal of parenting? Again, is it merely to keep your kid uh, alive long enough to marry and to move out? Is it merely to prepare, prepare them for college, to prepare them for a good job? Is it to maximize their happiness? Is it to leave them a good inheritance? Is it just to make them smile? What's your goal as a parent? Biblically, the answer is simple. Right? The role of a parent, Carl talked about this last week, is to commend the nature, the character, the works of God, the glory of Christ, the good news of the gospel, the authority and sufficiency of Scripture, the love of the body of Christ to our children. In other words, it's to instill in them a biblical worldview. In other words, the role of a parent, the goal of a parent is discipleship. That is ultimately what God has required of you. That's what faithfulness entails is that you disciple your kids. You're not, as a parent, you're not ultimately responsible for whether or not your child loves and trusts Jesus. That's in the God, God's mysterious purpose of election. But you're absolutely responsible for whether or not they're, uh, you're faithful to train your children in that direction. You're not responsible for the results, but you are res- uh, responsible for being faithful to move in that direction. Consider the following passages that articulate this burden. Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Proverbs 1.8, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. Proverbs 4, Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. Proverbs 29, discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. Chapter 22, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. In the New Testament, Ephesians 6, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. 
that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That word discipline is the same word that's used for chastening in, uh, in Hebrews 12. So the reason it's so essential for parents to understand this responsibility is simple. Unless you know the end, you can't really know the faithful means to accomplish that end. For example, if the goal is to make your child happy, then discipline is directly antithetical to that end. Hebrews 12 explicitly says, right, no discipline seems pleasant at the time. It is painful. So if your goal is just to make your child happy, then you shouldn't discipline them. If the goal is just to pacify, to please your children, then doing anything unpleasant is going to be contrary to that desire. But if the goal is something deeper, if the goal is something more substantial, if the goal is something more biblical than that, then we can understand how discipline might play this indispensable role. In order to make disciples, there must be discipline. So what does the Bible say is your role as parents? Does the Bible say that your role as a parent is just to make your child happy? Or does it say to discipline them, to disciple them? The answer is clear. You might think, well, maybe formative discipline is sufficient. I can just teach my kids, and that is enough. So can parents merely proactively teach truth, or must they also reactively correct and rebuke and even engage in things like corporal punishment? As mentioned earlier, no parent, no Christian parent, I wouldn't think, would disagree with the idea that we have a responsibility to disciple our children. But though nearly all parents would agree that there needs to be some form of formative discipline, there needs to be some form of teaching your children proactively, many parents today, even within the church, are uncomfortable with the concept of corrective discipline. However, Scripture clearly attests, again, it's this two-sided coin, and Scripture clearly attests to the necessity of both sides. Good parents not only instruct in good character, but also reprove and correct bad behavior. Consider the following passages. Proverbs 15, a fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. Proverbs 29, 19, by mere words a servant is not disciplined, for though he understands he will not respond. Proverbs 6, for the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Proverbs 19, strike a scoffer, and the simple will learn prudence. Reprove a man of understanding, and he will gain knowledge. Proverbs 6, again, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Again, that word discipline there is the same word that would uh, refer to the chastening work of our Heavenly Father in Hebrews 12. So the fact that corrective discipline is commanded in Scripture is undeniable, And yet many parents are still uncomfortable with it. Why is that? Well, it's owing to many of those philosophical, cultural shifts that we mentioned above. But it's particularly rooted in a deficient understanding of anthropology and hamartiology. What's anthropology? The doctrine of what? Man, right? Ants, right? Anthropology, the doctrine of ants. What about hamartiology? The doctrine of sin. There you go. Historically, there have been two main positions on the question of the inherent nature of mankind. On one side, some have believed that man is morally good or at least neutral. 
So from that perspective, sin is something that we receive by nurture. It's a product of our environment, not nature. We're not born sinners. We become sinners through the influence of society and other external influences. And that view was most popularized by a dude named uh, Pelagius. Pelagius was confronted. Thank you for booing. Pelagius was confronted by a guy named Augustine. All right, You can cheer him if you want. Whose views ended up winning, by the way. Augustine asserted that man is inherently naturally inclined toward evil. Man is not tabula rasa. He's not a blank slate. He's not essentially good, certainly, but rather he's twisted. He's innately corrupted by sin. We don't become sinners because we sin. We sin because we're already sinners. So there was this epic battle that took place between Augustine and uh, Pelagius. And uh, at Augustine won, Pelagius was declared a heretic. However, what was interesting is that throughout history, the heresy of Pelagianism has never really died. It's crept back into Western theology through things like the Enlightenment, through pop psychology, through the Second Great Awakening. If you were here when we talked about church history, we talked a lot about that being a big view of a guy named Charles Finney, who was a leader of the Second Great Awakening. And this idea continues to creep into the hearts of parents today. We don't like to think, none of us, like to think of our children as being wicked, as being evil. We know that sometimes they sin, right? That's obvious. But deep down, we kind of believe that sin is something that's external to them. Not at the very core of their being. We think they're just being kids or they just don't know better rather than admitting that their disobedience actually goes much deeper than that. The following passage is really helpful. Proverbs 22, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Notice that's what Augustine is saying. That's what Augustine is articulating, that folly is not something that's potential or something that's accidental. It's an essential attribute of fallen children. It's bound up in their hearts. It's a part of their very identity. It'll only be driven away by discipline. As a parent, you can't implant a love of Christ in your kids, but you can uproot foolishness and rebellion and insubordination. And that cannot be accomplished solely by means of formative discipline. Instead, faithful parenting demands both formative and corrective discipline. But what kind of corrective discipline? Here's where we get kind of to the existential angst of our culture. All, right, all Christians would agree that we need to disciple our kids. Most would recognize that we need to discipline our kids. Many would even say that we need to apply corrective discipline, but much fewer than acknowledge that corrective discipline should include things like corporal, uh, corporal punishment, things like spanking. There's lots of questions on this topic. You might have heard a number of them or read them online. Should I spank my child? And if so, should I use some sort of instrument or only my hand? How many times is too few? How many times is too many? Is that the only tool in your tool belt? Or should you also use some other corrective discipline forms like timeout or taking something away or taking away a privilege or something like that? So what does Scripture actually say about corrective discipline? The answer is it says quite a bit. The, the, the most famous 
biblical quotation on the subject, spare the rod, spoil the child, isn't actually in the Bible, at least not those words, but the sentiment certainly is. But there's a lot that the Bible does say. Proverbs 29, 19, I want to start with this. By mere words, we read this earlier, by mere words a servant is not disciplined, for though he understands, he will not respond. This is why I said before, formative discipline alone is insufficient. If you think that you can just verbally teach your kids, then you're naive, right? It explicitly says mere words are not adequate. Which means that while raising your voice or having a strong conversation can and should be a part of the process at times, it's lacking. Folly is bound up too deeply into the heart of your children to be uprooted by mere speech. The more deadly the disease, the more potent the prescription, and sin isn't a sniffle. Right? Given the profound danger of the symptoms of folly and insubordination and disobedience, the prescription needs to be strong and unrelenting. So what instrument besides the voice does God command for the sake of corrective discipline? Proverbs 10, On the lips of him who has understanding, wisdom is found, but a rod is for the back of him who lacks sense. Chapter 13, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. 22, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. 23, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. Chapter 29, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. What's really interesting is that the only explicit prescription that Scripture gives for applying corrective discipline is the rod. Some might claim The image of a rod is merely metaphorical for any sort of rebuke. It doesn't need to entail actual corporal punishment, but such a view doesn't fit with the text above. Remember, mere words, the Bible explicitly says, are insufficient. In addition, notice that a rod is, quote, for the back, and it explicitly involves striking. Lastly, Proverbs 29 mentions both rod and reproof showing that they are related but distinct things. So you can't just say rod is metaphorical for reproof because the Bible has distinguished those. Those go together, but they are different. All uses of the rod involve reproof, but not all reproofs involve the rod. Nonetheless, it's overwhelmingly clear that the biblical expectation is of some form of corporal punishment or in today's vernacular, spanking. While our, our culture is increasingly uncomfortable with the idea of spanking, it's clear that God expects and commands it. So to this point, we've just tried to set a, a framework, a theology of, uh, of discipline, applying that theology in your own life, in your own home, is going to take a whole lot of wisdom. can't be exhaustively communicated in one lesson. However, I do want to try to give you a few principles to keep in mind as you seek to incarnate this theology into your parenting. The first thing that I'd encourage you to do is to beware of either-or thinking on formative and corrective discipline. Again, good parenting involves both instruction and good character and correction for bad character, right? If If you think, my solution is just I'm going to spank my kids and I'm never going to teach them, that's unfaithful. On the other hand, If your solution is, I'm just going to teach my kids, 
and I'm never going to engage in corrective discipline, that's unfaithful. It needs both. Good parenting involves both instruction in good character and correction for bad. The more faithful you are in proactive, formative discipline and in reactive, corrective discipline, the less you will have to engage in the latter over time. You'll never turn off the desire for formative discipline, but at some point, hopefully, you kind of move beyond corrective discipline, right? There are still things that my mom and dad try to encourage me in in terms of formative discipline. They don't still spank me or give me timeouts or something, right? So the more that you're faithful, though, in the early years, the more that you can move on from corrective discipline over time as they've learned those lessons, Number two, establish clear boundaries to spanking. For example, wise discipline is limited by the number of spankings or rules like not breaking the skin or not striking the head or other more vulnerable parts of the body, what instruments are acceptable, etc. Those boundaries relate not only to rules regarding how you should spank, but also when you should spank. In other words, you should clearly communicate to your kid what is and is not acceptable behavior so that they know when they're crossing the line into disobedience. Remember, at the end of the day, that's what you're spanking your kid for, is actual disobedience. Not because you're just annoyed by them. Not because you're having a bad day. Not because you're frustrated, but rather because they are actually being disobedient. If your child is annoying you, that isn't grounds for disobedience. Unless you've told them to stop yelling, or to stop screaming, or whatever it might be, then it crosses the line into disobedience. Or being loud, or jumping on a couch, or putting your feet on the table, or whatever it might be, that's not disobedience in and of itself, unless or until you've told them to stop doing it, then it's crossed the line into disobedience. So establish clear boundaries to spanking. You be explicit with your kids what is and is not sin for them. Number three, Consider the immediate context. If at all possible, spanking should be reserved for a more private setting, especially as our culture is increasingly secular. Right, 30 years ago, if you saw someone getting a spanking at Walmart, it wasn't weird. Today, if you spank your kids at Walmart, you might have the police called on you, right? And you probably would just rather avoid that particular conversation. Besides, there's also this issue of a child's dignity to consider, right? The goal is to correct behavior through the application of physical discomfort. It's not to exacerbate that pain through being publicly ridiculed. If you can go into a bathroom or you can go into a bedroom, that's generally going to be better. Fourth, beware of under or overreaction. Throughout Scripture, there is this principle known as lex talionis. Lex talionis means uh, that the punishment should fit the crime. It's, it means the law of the talion. It means the punishment should fit the crime. In other words, telling a white lie, stealing a pack of gum, trying to push a sibling into oncoming traffic, all of those are sinful. Some of those are worse than others, right? And they should be disciplined accordingly. Some of those might be worthy of one spanking, some of those five, whatever it might be, but the punishment should fit the crime. In addition, that sort of idea of lex talionis means that there should be some sort of consistency. Right? Physical, think of physical discipline. Think of something like jogging. Jogging must be consistent to take effect. 
right? You have to do it every day or you have to do it every week or whatever it might be to actually see its effects. The same is true when it comes to discipline of your children. If discipline itself is gracious, then being uh, consistent and the application of that discipline is gracious. In other words, parents should discipline not sometimes, but every single time there is disobedience. Inconsistent discipline produces inconsistent obedience. What's another name for inconsistent obedience? Disobedience, right? As with jogging, the results may not be in, uh, immediate. It might take years for you to see the effects, but it's worth it. Trust the process. At the end of the day, your goal is to be faithful And that comes as you submit yourself to the word of God and act in accordance with his commands, regardless of the results. Number five, beware of emotional responses. As we've seen in the scriptures above, the motivation for any discipline, whether spanking or not, should be love. Shouldn't be driven primarily by anger or frustration. So if necessary, take a few seconds to breathe, to remind yourself of the hope of discipline and your role as a parent before you apply it. That said... You can't swing the pendulum too far. Many parents who don't want to, quote, spank in anger think that means they have to wait till they're perfectly calm to discipline their kids. Not only is that wishful thinking, I don't know as a parent when I've ever been perfectly calm, but it could really confuse your child who's disciplined far too long after they've disobeyed. So not, quote, unquote, spanking in anger simply means that you don't let your anger be the primary reason that you spank him. That should be sin. That should be disobedience. Or lead you to too aggressively discipline them. It doesn't mean you have to wait until you're perfectly happy before you discipline them. Number six, begin and end with conversation. Make sure the child knows why they're being spanked and that you do so because you love them. This step is really important even if you think your child is too young to grasp the significance of the act. If nothing else, it builds a habit in you of always connecting corrective corporal punishment to formative discipline and instruction. In addition, you may need to occasionally follow up with an apology if you realize that you were too aggressive or you were too angry or you otherwise were sinful in the way that you applied discipline. Discipline itself obviously is not sinful. In fact, it's good, it's righteous, but it can be abused. And when it is, You as a parent should be quick to model confession and apology. And then number seven, have other tools in the toolbox. When it comes to spanking, there are two dangers for parents to avoid. The first is that we would never spank. That seems strange in light of the fact that that's the only thing that Scripture explicitly tells us to do. That's the first danger. At the same time, The fact that the Bible only mentions corporal punishment doesn't mean that all other forms of discipline are prohibited. Instead, the use of rewards or timeouts or restriction of privileges, all of those things can be faithful supplements, not substitutes, but supplements to a healthy and holistic view of disciplinary action. That's especially important as your children get older and might be phased out of spanking. So putting all of those in practice would look something like the following Imagine your kid does something, whatever it is that your kid normally does, imagine they do it. Here are the steps for your response. Number one, you have to determine if it was actual disobedience. You don't want to excuse disobedience, but neither do you want to to neglect to take into account actual extenuating circumstances, right? For example, there's a difference between a kid who is screaming because they didn't get their way 
and one who's screaming because he stepped on a nail and he has that nail stuck in his foot. Or maybe you told your kid to go to bed and to not get up and then they get up and you're going to spank them and then you realize they've thrown up in their bed. You need to be firm, but you also need to be fair in determining whether the heart was actually seeking to be disobedient or there was a legitimate excuse. Now, kids love excuses. I'd encourage a great deal of suspicion and skepticism, but not an absolute unwillingness to listen. Number two, assuming that you think there was actual sin involved, you need to take the child to a more private area. Again, the goal is not public humiliation. Number three, ask the child if they know why they're being spanked, what they did wrong, etc. If they don't know, or they say they don't know, then don't just say, well, we're done. Tell them why they're being disciplined. Also try to help them see that the root issue isn't just the outward action. I'm not just spanking you because you screamed. I'm spanking you because I told you not to scream. Connect it with the actual disobedience, not just the outward action, because the outward action might not be inherently sinful. It's sinful in the context of you telling them as their parent not to do it. So the deeper issue is disobedience. They're being disciplined for their disobedience to you. And in reality, that means they're being disciplined because of their disobedience to God, because you are their God-ordained authority. Number four, you spank the child. How hard and how many times, it depends on the child and the offense. But generally, you should spank as many times and as hard as is necessary to produce the intended response. If the child doesn't seem all that disturbed, you should probably do it more times and do it harder. Right? As a kid, my mom would spank me and I would laugh. Then she'd spank me again and I'd laugh. And eventually she'd give up and I thought, I won. Right? I think at some point you've got to break your kid's will. Uh, if the child protests or the child tries to block your hand or the instrument, this is what my kids do every single time, then you should spank them for that act of rebellion in addition to the initial transgression. In other words, you say, I'm giving you three spankings. They block it. Okay, now you're getting an extra two or whatever it might be. Number six, reaffirm your love for the child. Help them to understand discipline is loving. This is something you have to formatively discipline them in. Give them a bit of time to compose themselves before returning to a public setting. And then number seven, do it all over again as often as is necessary. And by that, I mean as often as disobedience occurs. There's going to be this kind of war of attrition where a kid is going to recognize at some point you just get tired. And that's going to be the moment that they're going to uh, continue. And so you have to win. In the end, you have to win. It's like the song from Karate Kid. I didn't mean to quote that. So I want to end with this because it's so important. This whole lesson, again, hinges on the issue of authority, the authority and sufficiency of God's word and the meaning of love and discipline. If parents are going to recover a healthy view of corporal punishment, they must first have a biblical view of discipline. In order to do that, they must have a biblical view of what parenting entails and the role of discipleship. So this begins and ends with acknowledging that discipline is rooted in love and it's motivated by the good of the person who is being disciplined. If you don't grasp that, you will not discipline biblically. Though unpleasant at the time, inherently, by definition, unpleasant at the time, 
It's ultimately for your child's good and ultimate joy. Therefore, may we, as a people, be willing to reject our own cultural assumptions, our own feelings, repent of our own unbiblical presuppositions, and believe the Word of God for the sake of those whom we love. Let's pray, and then we'll do some questions. Father, I thank you for the uh, gift of parents. I confess that it is a difficult but good task that you have called us to. And so I pray that you would help us to be faithful. I confess that I myself, and I know every single person in this room, has failed at times in our responsibility to disciple and discipline our kids. We've been too aggressive, we've been too passive, whatever it might be. And yet at the end of the day, our hope is not ultimately in our actions, rather it's in your grace and mercy. So I pray by your grace and mercy, you would not only discipline and disciple our kids, but you would help us to be more faithful in that regard. We pray these things because you love our kids more than we do, and you love us more even than we love ourselves. And so would you help us in Christ's name. Amen.